Okay. I am sorry I missed a, really a lot of sessions and uh, I feel very bad. But oh, don't feel bad. everyone needs a break. It's not a break. <laughs> you were sick. That was I, sick. That's what I mean. I'm sorry. But it's okay. I couldn't like really do it. It was just too much. So you can blame me. I made you cancel. Yeah, well, yeah, you didn't make me cancel, but it's okay. So um, it actually worked out because the Shabbos is my father's yard site. And so I wanted to, I mean, the truth is that I dedicated the whole uh, series of Shurim to my father's Aliyat uh, Neshama because he was a Torah teacher. And, you know, and so I'm trying to like uh, sort of go in his ways and the hope that gives him Nahat in Shamayim. And yeah, and this really it's the second yard site now, which is like amazing. Don't know how the time passes. So um okay, so we're up to Perik Lamit Aleph. So first of all, it has to be said that Shmuel is really one safer. Since you know, 31 chapters is a very serious amount of learning. And we really uh, need to um, congratulate each other for this milestone. Technically, it's not, we haven't really finished Shmuel, but because you see the division of, of Shmuel Ashmuel Bet, Malach and Bet, and Divrei Yamin Aleph and Bet are, began with the translation of the Targum Shivim back in the time of the Greeks and was taken up by the um, the Christians. And because, you know, it was a very, those would have been very big volumes. It was just more convenient for them to split it up. It's actually a little strange because <coughs> really the story continues in the beginning of Shmuel Bet, but still, still I felt that, you know, we should make this, uh, you know, Milestone, mark this milestone, and I have a chayim for you, everybody. <laughs> Nothing serious in there. Okay, so we'll begin. It's Perak Lamed Aleph, Shmuel Aleph, and we're going to screen share, and we'll go right to the text. Okay, so as usual, I like you to see the first text here. It is a short Perak, only 13 psukim. But it's really action packed, a lot of stuff going on here. And um, it's very tragic. Uh, it's very tragic, Perak. It's, it's sad on many, many different levels. And it's kind of, you know, Shmulalf divides into like three sections. Like the first section is when we're meeting Shmuel himself and we, you know, we transition from Ailey to Shmuel. The second section is Shmuel as a leader. And you know, in his association with Shaul, and the third section is Shaul and David. So we were actually coming to the end of a great story of of uh, King Shaul, and the ending is so tragic. So it's it's important to say that um, even though. We see a very sad story here, the end of Shaul, and you know, and the many 
mistakes that he made and the sins that he did, we still have to remember that he was a very, very great person with tremendous potential, with tremendous righteousness, with tremendous midot. And, um, and we have to take a look at how, you know, how the Chazal approached this story and everything else. Okay, so really the, the chapter has uh, a few sections, although it's really all narrative. The first part is telling us about the war and uh, how it's going badly. And the second part is how Shoal reacts to the defeat and uh, how he decides to um, commit suicide. And <clears throat> the end of the battle, his death. And the, the next uh, the section is how the Plishtim find him and what they do to his body. And the last part is an attempt to save him from complete disgrace. It's a very sad story. So first of all, over here, um, over here I have the map of the war. Hmm. No, not there. Wrong map. This is the map I wanted. Okay, sorry. I get a little crazy. So we're in the Jezreel Valley here, and everything is happening on Haragaboa, on the mountain of Gilboa. And it's, uh, you know, central or lower Galilee. We discussed this in the previous chapters. What are the Plishtim doing up here? The Plishtim are coastal people. They're down here. How do they get up here? And it seems as if they are uh, becoming more powerful and trying to encroach on Jewish territory everywhere. So this is very central. And we, we have gone from chapter 30. And at the in chapter 30, which we did two weeks ago, we saw the story of David. Right, in chapter 29, Achish wants to wants him to go with him to the war. And the people uh, that are with Achish say that I'm talking about David, that people that are with Achish say, you know, get him out of here. We don't want David here. And David is sent back, you know, protesting all the way that his great loyalty, which is like interesting. And he ends up fighting this battle because the, the Amalek have come and taken over his city of Tiklag, captured all of the, um, the families of his 600 men. And we saw how last time how David goes after them and saves them. So here is important to understand, okay? This is also, everything we see is always HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not want David at this battle. And David is therefore busy down south, right? All the way down here, even further down, because he has to recover his people at Ziklag. If David was at this war and it's going to be tremendous defeat, then David is going to be part of the problem. Hashem 
engineers it so that David is nowhere near. This is Shaul's defeat, and David has nothing to do with it. <coughs> now, our story, in our story, we're told that Shaul um, falls on his sword and he kills himself. At the beginning of Shmuel Bet, chapter one, a, an Amaleki uh, person, a young man, comes to David with Shaul's crown and his armband. And he tells David that he was the one who finished Shaul off. So we get two versions. It's important to understand this. We get two versions of the death of Shaul. One version is here, where we see that um, Shaul actually falls on his own sword. And the other version is in the beginning of Shmuel Ben, chapter one, where we hear that the, the Amalek youth says he, he's the one who um, killed Shaul. We will actually never know what's the true story. And the Mephoshim uh, theorized that the Amalek is trying, the Amalek um, guy is trying to ingratiate himself with David by saying that he, you know, was involved with killing Shaul. David, of course, doesn't, uh, is not impressed. And that's another story. We'll get to that next time. But it's important to understand that we don't really know the full story. Okay. <laughs> The Plishtim were fighting with Israel. And the children of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and many, many victims, Halalim are victims, fell on Haragilboa. This is not a promising beginning, and it's very, very sad. And um, <clears throat> Rashi right away says, we're going back to the main story. The whole story of David leaving the Plishtim and going back and dealing with with the, um, the Amalekim who captured the people of Tziklag is a digression. Now we're going back to the main story. And we find here, the Malam makes a very interesting comment here. It's just like, if you look at this battle, the Plishtim are fighting and the Jews were running away. So that's a very sad story. And um, oh, I have too much stuff open here. This is this the Gemara, right? The Tehila Nisa Nefila. The beginning of fleeing is a downfall of battlefield. In other words, when they start running away, they're going to lose. We saw that in chapter four, when uh, the Plishtim, you know, recovered from the initial shock of having the Aron come to the, to the battlefield, and the Jews fled and they were defeated and etc. And here too, we see that the children of Israel fled before the Philistines and were killed. And that's a very sad situation because as Mom, the Malam says, we see here 
defeat happening before there's really a fight. And it's important to understand this. And I think it's important to, to suggest that Shoal, back in chapter 28, the last time we saw Shoal, Shoal has been given the news that, that you know, he, he's raised Shmuel up with this necromancer. And Shmuel has said to him, tomorrow, you're all going to be with me. In other words, you and your three sons are going to, uh, you know, class for Shalom, that's what he says. They're all going to die. And Shalom goes out to war knowing that this is what Shmuel has predicted, that this is the prophecy. So you have to understand, and I think it's important that we should take a lesson from this. Historically, the fighting spirit, the mood of an army is critical. We see that today. We have, um, you know, it's very clear in Israel that we're fighting a very existential battle. And that makes it, you know, people are so um, strong on this. They're so, uh, a second. They completely are <clears throat> involved with this war. And their dedication to the battle is great. And um, hopefully the fighting spirit will stay with them. You see, it could very well be that Shaul's fears, even though he doesn't say anything to anyone, it could be that there is this atmosphere of fear that the Jews are just, they can't, uh, they run away. And many, many people die on Haragadol. And the word Bayad Beku is from the root of Debek, clinging. The Plishtim were following Shaul closely. The Malbim points out here that Shaul Lacham Berov Koach Lachen Lo Katav Bayasidu. They were at coming close to Shaul, but the, he was fighting with everything he had, and therefore they didn't actually capture him. However, the Plishtim struck his three sons, Yehonatan, the most well-known, his oldest son, and David's beloved friend, Avinadav and Malkishua. And I believe there is, uh, near Geboa, there's a Yishab named uh, Malkishua. So, you can imagine Shaul's state of mind at this point in time. His three sons are dead. People are running away from the battle. He knows he's going to die this day. And everything looks very, very dark. It is very dark. Now, one question that the uh, Befarshim asks here, and... Um, Radak, which is not in this particular thing, which is like sad. Radak asked this question, where is Ishboshet? Shaul has a fourth son, and his name is Ishboshet. He's also called Eshbaal, and he becomes very important at the beginning of Shmobet when Avner and Amasa push him into a leadership role, which is, it's one, it's not so clear that that's what Ishboshet wanted. And it's a very strange name, something we have to talk about. Why is this called Ishboshet? You know, Baal is, uh, it, it seems that the name um, connotes some sort of um, ownership over Baal. Like, Gidon is called Yeru Baal. 
And Baal is also, you know, uh, it's an embarrassing thing that people believe in Baal. So that's Boshet. Ishbal and Ishboshet, it's the same person. Why isn't he at the war? So the, the Radak says, <coughs> um, right, he didn't go out to war. That's one suggestion without an answer. The Abarbanel, I'm not going to show you every parashan, but the Abarbanel says that there were uh, either he didn't go out to war because he was not a strong person or he went out to war and left. Okay. Now, the other question is, if Shaul dies here, and you'll see that a lot of Shaul's men die with him, his sons, and where is Avner, his commander-in-chief, Avner Ben-Ner, his first cousin, and where's Amasa ben Yetzel, his other general? His two generals and his uh, son who's going to take over, Shoshet, are not in this picture. So uh, the Dath Mikra has an interesting comment and says, out of a family, only three sons went to war. If there were more sons, they didn't go to war, which would make sense as a precaution that only three went to war. And he bases this on the story of David. When David goes to the battle where he kills Goliath, David is one of eight sons, and only three of them are at the battle. So this is the comment of the Dat Mikra, the Moser Rav Kook Navi, which is like a very, very interesting uh, idea. So we don't know where, where, where he is. It's an int more interesting question of where are the generals? Where are Avni and Amasa? Maybe they get away. Maybe they're there and they get away. Okay, so here is a very uh, difficult um, pasuk, right? First of all, this, what are these morim? And the Mepharshim say it should be, it's, it's uh, in the wrong order. It should be anashim hamorim bakeshe people who shoot with the bow. And I think that the bow and arrow is like an art form. And I think today we would call these people snipers. And Shaul reacts badly to this. It says, So there are many, many Mepharshim who explain this as heel, right? That he is seized with dread because of the archers which is very interesting, like, you know, he's afraid that they're going to get him. There's another interpretation, which um, very, uh, seems to make a lot of sense to me. And that's also Dat um, Nikra. It says that this is from the same root as Chalal, uh, right? We saw in Prasak Aleph, many Chalalim fell, that he was actually wounded by the archers. Now, when we see the development here and what Shaul does subsequently, then we, it, it, the idea that he's actually wounded makes a lot of sense. And actually, I did... Um, I opened so many things here. Ahav, right? Batala milchama bayomahu, right? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Ishma Shach Bakesha Lutumo. Ahab is in his last battle where he gets killed. 
And he, um, um, Archer hit him with an arrow without intending to, right? By Yomer Lerachavo to be the, his charioteer, Take me out of the camp because I am sick. And here, that word hechaleti is very similar to what we see here by Yochel min which would explain a lot. Okay, explain a lot because you have to understand that what is Shaul um, going to do if he's actually wounded and he thinks he's going to die. So, um, the development from Pasuk Gimel to Pasuk Dalit is very dramatic, right? For some reason, so the, the Chazal explained by Yechelen that there is some dread that um, grabs him, but it's it's a very difficult phrase, but he's very, very afraid. And um, there are a few uh, commentaries that I saw that give show a tremendous amount of credit for continuing to fight at this point until until this point, right? Because he knows he sees his sons are dead. He knows he's going to die, and yet he's giving it all he's got. This is uh, the the Mincha Ketar of Moshe Frankfurt, and also the Kida says something very very similar that <coughs> they he was a great tzaddik because he could have run away also. And he he continued fighting to give his people spirit and to, you know, he, want, he actually wanted to be killed in the battle. That doesn't happen. So at this point in time, and he sees that they're closing in on him. And he says to his armor bearer, and I have to understand the armor bearer and the, and the uh, you know, the champion, like Shaul in this case, there's a very close relationship here. This is his, you know, his chief helper in the battle. And he says, take out your sword and stab me with it because these uncircumcised, uh, uncircumcised ones will come and they will stab me and they will torture me. But his armor bearer didn't want to do it because he was very afraid. And so Shaul took the sword and he fell upon it. And um, yeah, I had a hard time preparing this. this. This story is like so sad to me. Shaul decides that he's not going to live. He's not going to survive. And in his mind, the next scenario is that the Plishtim are going to capture him still alive. And what are they going to do to him? And the Abarbanel gives a long discussion, like a very, uh, I have to say, very graphic discussion of what might happen to Shaul. Um, he was afraid that they, should, they would do to him what they did to Shimshon, that they put out his eyes, or to Tzidkiyahu, that they would um, treat him with disgrace that they would stab him again and again and again. And um, he was very afraid of this, these ayon, 
and he did not want to be put through that. We're going to talk about the, the, the ramifications of what he does in a minute, but let's just understand what happens. <coughs> the armor bearer, right, his, you know, buddy and best friend, he doesn't want to do it. There, you have to think about it. There are many, many reasons why it was too hard for the armor bearer. His, it's his close friend. It's his king. He doesn't want to be the one to do that deed. You know, this is our one of our three biggies, Yahari Val Yavar. And he, perhaps, uh, you know, at this point in his life, he's not able to come up with the, you know, the whatever you, whatever it takes to do this deed. Now, if we compare Shaul to Abimelech in Shoftim, now Abimelech is a very um, evil person. If you recall the story, he was the renegade son of, of Gidon, who killed all his brothers and was, uh, at the end, felled by the, a millstone on his head. A woman threw a millstone on his head, and so he wanted to maintain the fiction that he was killed not by a woman so he asked his armor bearer to kill him and the armor bearer does so that's the relationship between Abimelech and his armor bearer which Shaul's armor bearer cannot do that he is uh, not able to do that so Shaul fall on his sword and the armor bearer sees that Shaul is dead and he falls on his own sword and dies with him and Shaul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on that day together. So uh, this very, very tragic story. So we have to uh, stop a few minutes and talk about the idea of suicide in, in Torah and how, how that plays out. It's not at all a simple thing because we have the Pusik and Bracious. Let's see if I can here. Yeah. Okay, this is in Parshish Noah. I will demand your blood for your soul. So Rashi here says, I allowed you to kill animals. It's right after the flood. God says you can kill animals to eat them. But a person who sheds his own blood, I will demand uh, an accounting from him. In other words, you're not allowed to commit suicide. So the, the Medrash and Gracious Rabbah says on this Pasuk, and this is a misquote, it's Genesis 9, right? Ach, the word ach that's in that Pasuk that I just showed you, ach is a but. But I will demand your blood of your lives. And this is to include one who strangles himself. Like, in other words, there might not be blood in the case of suicide. One might think this applies even to cases like Shaul. The verse states, ach. One might think that this applies even to cases like Hananiah, Mishal, and Isaiah. The verse states, ach. So we have here, and this is something that we see, um, uh, you know, I, I have to say that I, I use the research by uh, 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 Rabbi Torquezina from Canada. He did a tremendous amount of research on this, and he has uh, chuvos from Rishonim and Achronim, uh, 
it, it seems across the board that no one considers Shaul an intentional suicide. Okay, he's not in that category. And it's very, very interesting. There's many, many reasons for this. We'll take a look first at Radak, who, who basically gives the outline of it. Um, here. Um, okay. Second. Okay. <clears throat> and he goes through this Russian medrash that I just explained to you. And he says, Lo chata. Shaul did not sin here. He, he knows he's going to die. It's, it's terminal. It's a terminal situation, right? Shmuel told him he's going to die. He could not escape. They found him. And, um, <coughs> and he felt that it was better for him to uh, kill himself and not allow the uncircumcised ones to, uh, you know, disgrace him and torture him. So that is the basic outline of the idea. However, there's a few other um, important things that I want you to bring out in the, this particular very sad story. First of all, the other exception is the Hanani Mishal and Zarya. Hanani Mishal and Zarya threw themselves into the fiery furnace rather than bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. <coughs> it's not considered suicide. They were saving themselves from sin. But if you look at the, um, the other refreshing, the Abarbanel, he goes in the same idea. Abarbanel goes through all the many, many ways that Shaul might have been tortured. And I have to say, because we're living in these really you know, difficult times, and... They're horrible people, and they do horrible things. And the tortures that they, um, you know, perpetrate on people are things that, like, the human mind doesn't even, can't even go there. Like, a normal human mind, like, who would do the things that they've done? And every minute that a person there is in captivity, we don't know. We just don't know what these, you know, beasts are capable of. And we know that the Plishtim are going to, you know, we're going to see this at the end of the chapter, they're going to disgrace Shaul's body. So what would they have done if they had captured Shaul alive? Shaul is their great enemy, and he's, um, you know, made things very hard for them. So they have no problem disgracing his body, and what would they do to him alive? So... <coughs> um, Rav Shlomo Luya, the Yam Shlomo, suggests two other things that are important to take into account. If Shaul is captured alive and subjected to torture, it's possible that many Jews would try to rescue him and they might be in danger. So Shaul is actually saving Jews from endangering themselves to save him, which is... Um, Great, great Gevura. And the other suggestion that he makes is that, and this is something that uh, a number of other ideas uh, come to mind, and like many, many uh, great thoughts here, is that the Jewish king, the one who was anointed by God, taken and tortured by these evil people, and 
you know, we when we see that, this is what would constitute a tremendous fellowship. And Shoal wants to avoid that. So we have a lot of reasons for Shoal's, you know, apparent uh, suicide. One is that he, he knows he's going to die anyway. Two is he has no escape. Three is that he wants to prevent anyone else from dying to save him. And four is that he actually, his torture and, um, you know, mutilation would be a tremendous fleshet. So these are a lot of very uh, great reasons for him. Now, the Ramban says, <clears throat> and he talks about in, in the laws of, what's the nafkamina? Okay, what's the difference? if a person commits suicide or not. Halachically, a person who's considered a suicide may not be buried into a cemetery. They may not be allowed to uh, you know, be eulogized and to be mourned properly. So the Ramban, right, in, in his book on um, Torah Adam about Hespedim, he says, and I'm going to quote for you, We have found that an adult who kills himself because he's forced to, is eulogized. In other words, there are uh, all the components of mourning and eulogy and you know uh, treatment and, and burial are the same as for any other person who's forced to kill himself. For example, Shaul, the king of Israel, he was allowed, as it says in Bracious Rabbah, okay, we have other people who say this, so we see many, many reasons to say that Shaul's suicide is not considered a sin. And it's not punished as, a, as if it was a sin because he is forced to do this by the difficult circumstances and the terminal nature of those circumstances that he feels that this is the only, only thing that he can do. So therefore, he is supposed to be mourned and he's supposed to be eulogized. David eulogizes him in the next chapter and later on, Jews are criticized for not um, mourning him enough. And so we see that there is a tremendous redemptive nature to this. And I want to mention in this context that a lot of, you know, medical dilemmas come up with end of life situation. You know, a person is suffering, how much are you allowed to do to alleviate suffering? And it's a very complicated luck thing. And I don't pretend to like understand the whole thing, but you have to understand that these are very great Shilas today in, in many, many contexts. And, you know, I think it's important to understand that when you hear of suicide, that you uh, don't judge. Many, many people are in tremendous emotional and mental pain, and that would be considered an onus. And, um, yeah, and it's very, very rare from what I understand. It's very, very rare that there are consequences, you know, halachically against a person who never comes to that situation. Okay, anyway, the Ralbag makes a point here that we should, uh, it's a little bit more, uh, you know, with the Ralbag at the end of every story goes through a long list of things that he calls Torella, things that we learn here. <clears throat> And he makes a point of saying that this whole story shows the great Hashgah of Hashem. That now David, because of the way Shaul dies, the fact that his beloved friend Yonatan dies also, that 
David's path to kingship is is much more clear. I mean, there is going to be the whole story of Ishbosheth, but basically, number one, Shaul and Yonatan both die. So it's hard to imagine David, you know, how he would have uh, dealt with the fact that Yonatan had stayed alive. And the second part here, and here we'll take a look at Pasuk Zion, by Yeruan She Yisrael the people of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, and most likely this is Jezreel Valley, it could be the valley of Beit Shan, but it seems like the Jezreel Valley on the other side, right? That's when the Tzudah says, away with Israel. And even by the Jordan, they saw that the people of Israel were fleeing. And the sons are dead. The news spreads quickly. Tremendous defeat, tremendous rout. The Jews are running away. They're hearing about it even across the Jordan. They abandoned their cities, the unwalled cities, and they fled. And the Plishtim came and they dwelt in them. So we can go back to our map. Here's Amic Israel. <coughs> All across the valley, even across the Jordan, the Jews are running away, running away, and the Plishtim are taking over which shows you that at Shaul's death, and this is a, such a tremendous tragedy, at Shaul's death, the Plishtim had more territory than they had before he came into power. And therefore, it's a sort of posthumous condemnation of his kingship that the Jews are left at his death. Such a mess. Very, very, very sad. On the next day, the Plishtim come to strip the bodies. And they found Shaul and his three sons fallen on Har Gilboa. The terrible end. They cut off his head. By Yafshituet Kelav, and they took all of his vessels, which probably, you know, they explained that his clothing, his weapons, his whatever he had on him. By Shalchub Eretz Plishtim Saviv, and they sent it around all of the Plishti land. Levaser to inform in the temples of idolatry and to tell the people about their great victory. One of the things you have to pay attention to when you're learning Tanakh is thinking of like how this scene, you know, wh what, where are we like, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, um, completing the circle, right? What happened when David killed Goliath? Cut off his head and he brought it around to tell everybody about their great uh, victory. So Shaul is getting, you know, they're getting their revenge on him. He, he wasn't mistaken. If they could take his dead body and, you know, strip all of his stuff off, cut off his head and parade it around, right? He wasn't mistaken what they would have done to his live body, prosecuted. 
וישימו את כלב בית אשתרות, ואת גבייתו תקעו בחומת בית שד. And they put his vessels in the house of Ashtoreth, and his body, they stuck on the wall of Beit Shad. Now, here it's spelled Beit Shad Shin Nun. Today we spell Beit Shad Shin Aleph Nun, but it's the same place, right? <coughs> so here we have the ultimate degradation, right? They take his stuff into their houses of idol worship. Now, Ashtoreth is actually a Kanani guy, not a Pushti god, but they took his body and they stuck it on the wall of Beichan. And this is a tremendous, tremendous desecration. Now, I want to show you. Um, okay. This is Divrei Ayamim. So just for, as an aside and for your information, Divrei Ayamim is also known as Chronicles. That is um, the last book in the Tanakh that was redacted into the Tanakh. And it was written by Ezra, right, in the Second Temple period. And what Ezra does, he starts with Adam, and he goes through to David and David's dynasty. And because the return of the Jews to the land of Israel was not an easy thing, I mean, we could parallel that to, like, you know, the state of Israel and how hard it was for people to come back to Israel, and it's still not a uh, complete come back, right? So one of the things that Ezra does is he he <coughs> he takes so the 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 story of David and he he goes through it in great detail, starting from chapter eleven, this is chapter ten, and in, in Chronicles one, the very young one. And what he does is he like he sort of gets you to like see all the greatnesses of David and he sort of doesn't discuss any of David's failures. As a contrast, he will he does the exact opposite with Shaul because he's because his job, his point is that in Shmuel, what we're seeing in Shmuel is basically we're getting a more rounded picture. We are not seeing, we don't spend a lot of time on Shaul's successes. We're seeing his mistakes. We're supposed to learn from his mistakes. But here he gets downright, you know, um, condemnation from Ezra, right? So this story we see here, the same thing, very, very similar. Um, here, this is, on the next day they came to strip the, the dead. And Pasitet says, they took his head, they picked up his head and his stuff. And they sent it to land and pushed him around to tell the their idols. They put his vessels in the house of their god, and his skull they put in Beit Dagon. Now, this also should kind of jog your memory because back in chapter five, when the Plishtim captured the Ark of God, they put it in the house of Dagon. So we are meant to make these contrasts. Now in Shmuel, we're not told that they put his head in Beit Dagon, but I think we can rely on Ezra that this is what they did. And what we found in Perik He and Perik Vav, how God intervened to punish the Plishtim for taking the Aron and putting it in the house of Dagon, how Dagon is broken, and the Plishtim are given terrible plagues, but that doesn't happen here. 
So the degradation of Shaul is complete, and Hashem does not step in to help him. And Ezra condemns him here and says, um, and Shaul died in his, in his betrayal, that he betrayed God, that he didn't listen to the word of God, and also he went to, to ask uh, the Balatov. And he didn't ask God, and God killed him and turned the, the kingship to David ben Yishai. You see here that uh, a very great lesson to learn from here is even in the Tanakh, you have to understand who's talking to you and what they're trying to say, right? The end of Shaul's leadership, we're seeing in Sefer Shmuel the tragedy, but we're also going to see, we, we see his heroism that he went to war in spite of all the bad news. That's A. And B, we see the redemptive quality that's going to happen in uh, at the very end here. So let's go on. After the Plishtim do this terrible thing to um, Shaul, right? Pasik bin Aleph, by Yishma Uwe love Yoshve Yavish Gilad, Esashasuk Plishtim Shaul. The people of Yavish Gilad heard that the Plishtim had done to Shaul. Now let's remind ourselves who are Yavesh Gilad. So we need our map. Okay. Here's Yavesh Gilad. It's right over the Jordan. Okay. It's in the land of Gilad, which is theoretically Menashe territory. I'm just going to remind you of the history of Yavesh Gilad. Yavesh Gilad, first of all, they are connected in many ways to the people of Binyamin. Menashe and Binyamin have this partnership that goes back, we'll uh, not go into that whole thing now, but <coughs> at the time of the concubine of Gavin, the civil war, Yavesh Gilad do not want to fight against Binyamin and they stay behind. And the rest of the tribes are very angry with them for not joining the battle against Binyamin and they punish them. Later on, when the when they find that in Binyamin there's nobody left, you know, there's only 600 men left, one of the ways that they try to find wives is by marrying off the remaining Binyamin to the girls of Yavesh Gilad. So that means at the end of Sefer Shoftim in the story of the concubine of Geba, we find intermarriage between the people of Yavesh Gilad and the people of Binyamin. So that Shaul has many relatives in Yavesh Gilad. So then we understand what happens in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is what I think of as Shaul's finest hour. The people of Yavesh Gilad <laughs> are threatened by Nachash, the king of Ammon. And Nachash says to them, I'll make peace with you if you let me put out everybody's right eye. If you recall this story, they don't actually want to make peace at the expense of every right eye for some reason. That seems to be a tough condition. So they send messengers to the new king, Shaul, who hasn't really even taken power yet, right to give out Shaul, and they say, help. And Shaul travels. This takes seven days, the seven days that they have uh, to answer. <clears throat> Shaul travels all night, comes to Yavesh Gilad, and saves the entire town. So now we see what gratitude looks like. 
Vayakum kolishchayel pasukid bet. Vayelchu kololayla. All of the brave men of valor of Yavesh Gilad got up, and they went all night. Vayikhuet gviat Shaul at gviot banav, and they took the corpses of Shaul and the corpses of his sons. Mechomat beichan from the wall of beichan. Vayavoya beisha. Vayisafru otamishan. And they came to Yavesh, and they took all of the the bodies and they burnt them there. Hold that thought. And pasuk yud gimel vayekhuit atmotei vayekhuita hasa eshel biyavesha vayatzum shivat yamim. They took their bones, they buried them under a tree in Yavesh, and they fasted for seven days. So the medrash says the people of Yavesh are giving back to Shaul what he did for them, right? They fast seven days as a sign. First of all, seven days of mourning is a general rule in Judaism, but it's also <coughs> the seven days that they waited and were given the, the uh, redemption by Shaul. They went all night like Shaul did to save them all night. They gave honor to Shaul and to his sons and they took care of their bodies just as Shaul had given them their honor back by saving them from Nahash, the king of Ammon. So this is really, um, it's a very, very interesting. This is the way this chapter ends because we see here like a kind of um, an arc of like redemption for Shaul. Shaul, yes, he was punished for his sins. He's gotten a terrible, dire punishment. He suffers a great deal mentally, emotionally, and physically. And yet, the, the good that he did is returned by the people of Yavish Gilad. Nakarat Tov, the, the act of gratitude of these people is a tremendous, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful Mida. They are, uh, you know, it's, it's a shining light in a really, really dark time. They're not going to let him be disgraced anymore. And they come and they rescue the bodies and they bury them. So the question, of course, is <coughs> what did they burn? Because we don't believe in cremation. We have a lot of reasons that we do not cremate bodies. So, um, so there's a couple of uh, explanations here, right? One of them Rashi brings here. And it was a custom that the property of a king uh, was burnt so that no one else will use his property, his clothing or his, his things. And that was not considered dark mode. It was not considered idolatry practice. They burned the things that was the king's. Now, the only problem I have with that is it doesn't sound like they're burning things. It sounds they take bodies, they come to Yavesh and they burnt them there. It sounds like they are referring to burning the bodies. So that would be a little um, strange, right? And the Matsuda says, very sad, um, perhaps, you know, time had elapsed and these bodies were not in a good condition. And therefore, it was more respectful to burn the bodies and then they buried their bones. Well, they didn't burn the bones, they buried the bones, but perhaps um, out of respect, they burnt them out. And you see that everything they do is out of respect. So this also must be a question of respect. 
So now in the next chapter, we're going to find out, this is uh, Chazak, it says here, which is interesting because there's a really Chazak, Chaim, right? And again, it's a cake, right? We see a very great tragedy here, but number one, we do end on this note that because he did this great thing for Yavesh Gilad, they come and they give him this final respect. And we also see that because of his suffering, he's he's getting kapara now. Gemara is open, but we're going to have to find the correct Gemara. The Gemara says that he well okay we'll just have to say the Baal Peh we're at a time anyway the, the Medrash says that when Shmuel says to him tomorrow you and your sons are with me that this means that he is going to be together with Shmuel in Olam Haba and because Shaul doesn't run away and he doesn't um you know, he could just say, I'm not going to this war. Like, I don't really like this scenario and what I've been told. But he heroically goes out to battle with his sons. He fights even though people are running away. And we see here a certain, you know, greatness and a certain heroism that is going to help him. Like, because he does that and because he, you know, this is a sort of, um, you know, justifying his din that he's going to be forgiven for his sins his great sins that he did not listen to Hashem with the manner of Amalek and that he killed a Kohenim at Nov and so he he suffers a great deal at the end and so the Chazal say he actually comes into Olam Abba and um, he gets that uh, Kapara it's important to understand this because you know, when you when you like when you go through a story like Shaul, you, you tend to say, well, like he did this wrong and he did that wrong, and and like he's a bad person and he didn't stop chasing David. But you do have to understand that Shaul is really anus, where he's really forced. He gets this ruach ra. He is troubled emotionally, and many of the things he does are an outgrowth of that. Now we should never ever forget what a great person he is, because he's really a tremendous tragic hero but we are never meant to make to make him into a, a bad guy uh, he's just he's a it's it's a sad story but um that that's really the full circle right and at the end you do see a certain gula epi, you know idea I, I put on the chat for you for your interests the the song haragaboa which is very um stop the share right that song is uh i think it's a very uh sad song right and um uh, hargaboa is if you if you look at the song if you follow the song they're like pictures of hargaboa and on the other side is har tabor and in the distance is har Hermon, and like this in, in that so in you know like it's a video and you see the beautiful scenes 
of Amic Israel. It's so tragic. And, you know, one of the things that if you've never heard the song, it's a very, very beautiful song. And the words are there also. And it's giving you the sense that, um, that the landscape is the same, right? It's just, you know, you're given the, in the song like this, like you could imagine Shaul at that place, you know, because nothing has changed. The landscape is the same. It's the most beautiful and, you know, gorgeous uh, mountains over there. And that is where um, Shaul tragically dies. In the next chapter, we find out that the story of his death is not so simple. And this Amaleki comes and says, tells David that he was there and he finished him off. And um, we'll never ever know the truth of that, although David seems skeptical. Um, but there is a great irony in the fact that he's the last person to see him alive, one way or another, is someone from Amalek which is sort of, you know, that was one of his big mess ups. Okay, so we are finished with Shmuel Aleph. Okay, a little bit of a Misonos here. Shmuel. And onward, there's Rosh Hashem. A little bit of a sad story. If anyone has any questions, you can unmute yourselves. Chaim. Night, Debbie. Anyone have any questions, I, thoughts? I guess I just had a question about um, him killing himself in the sense that could it have been not that he really killed himself, but like more of just a representation that his actions are what did it for him? Like, like not that could it like could it be that the in-between is correct like the Amaleki like let's say because we didn't get there yet but the Amaleki killed him but when it talks about how he he killed himself it was more just like how his actions are what participated in his downfall could it have been a summary of that or very unlikely well the text is very explicit in three different places that he forced right. Uh -huh. that, that is an act of suicide. <coughs> it seems so it's Nazi. Okay. Somehow, right. I mean, all of his actions have brought him to this place and to this fate. But he does commit an act of suicide. I mean, he intentionally puts an end to his own life. So if you follow the Dath Mikra, which I, I find a very interesting that he's already wounded by the archers when it says by he was afraid of the archers is one interpretation but it's clear that it's very possible to say that he was wounded by the archers which would make a lot of sense once he's already wounded and they're coming to get him he's going to die and the only question is is he going to be tortured to death or is he going to you know you know end it as as quickly as he can. The problem is <clears throat> that no one is there to actually stab him. His armor bearer won't do it. And there seems to be, you know, he, he doesn't seem to actually um, be able to finish killing himself. So he's 
in this. I have a question about that. If the armor bearer had killed him, would that have been considered? Would that have considered a chet? That's like, a very good question. He clearly was afraid to do it. You know, killing somebody. Right. Today, that's why I said end of life issues are so complicated. You see someone suffering. I mean, assisted suicide. Are you allowed to do that? The Torah puts a tremendous value on life. You're not allowed to shorten someone's life for any amount of time. Right. But then you see people who are truly suffering. And I have seen this. I was with someone at the was suffering terribly. And the nurse, um, who was a good friend of hers, um, gave her you know, more morphine. So apparently you have to be very careful with doses of morphine because if you overdo morphine, then you're actually killing a person. On the other hand, the person's suffering so badly. So there's a whole lot of discussion. Like you can give enough morphine, you know, if, if that's going to, you know, right. Help them, you know, and, 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 you know, in this case, she said to me, I, I can't, she can't suffer anymore. And I, I didn't know what was happening. I don't know, nothing. But um, afterwards, I was told that, you know, we're giving her more morphine. And that was, I mean, she did not regain consciousness after that. So I don't, I don't know. <sighs> she was at a point of like, you know, she was gossessive. She was dying. And um, so there was, there's a halachic discussions about this. Like, you know, you, you can't um, you can't actively do anything to shorten someone's life. But if you're putting them out of pain and there's a danger that, you know, that might uh, be dangerous, that's not the point. The point is to put them out of pain. So it's, it's a very, very complicated issue, like katoti. I wouldn't want to go there. So when a person says, like, to the armor bearer, you stab me. Like, I understand why he's afraid. Like, <coughs> he's afraid to do it because, look, it's the king, right? How can he kill the king? And on the other hand, the king is telling him to do it, right? So he makes the, he makes the calculation that this is not, you know, uh, not something he's, he's up for. He doesn't do it. But he does kill himself afterwards because... You know, we're together in death and life. But you see, these people are, are they know what's coming if the police can capture them. Something so tragic to me because, you know, you're seeing, you know, the, the people who are, there's this really horrible video of Thomas Hand. You know, when he first hears that his, his daughter, Emily, he thinks she's dead. And he's like, oh, he's happy. He says, yes, you know, because her death is preferable to her being held as a captive. Mm -hmm. It's so gut-wrenching to see that. And then this little girl comes out and she's like a shadow of herself. And yeah, it was pretty horrible. You know, that's actually, you know, Bezrat Hashem, she'll, she'll live in our resilience. Mm -hmm. Hashem, she'll you know, get over that. But you understand that that's what they're looking at though you know Shoal knows what they're going to do to him look what they did to ship show 
they they put out his eyes and they they made him into a slave and a sightless slave evil people I have no problem torturing people in a sense that Shaul's mistakes led him to this place I guess you could say that is you know that's the cause but the immediate cause is his you know falling on his sword and that's uh, <sighs> pretty awful sad story yeah Anyway, <laughs> it's a downer, isn't it? Okay, right. What she's saying, chazak, chazak, and it's chazak. Yeah, yeah. It's always amazing to me how learning Tanakh has such echoes of what's going on in the world. And actually, there is an interesting debate on how much force can you use when you know that the enemy has your captives. There is, you know, there is something called apparently the Hannibal Directive that if they capture a soldier, you know, they have to, you know, vanquish the enemy even if the soldier is endangered. That's very controversial. Until <coughs> today, we have the same issues and the same questions. But um, yeah, going to see uh, David's reaction to all this, and that's going to be you know the next the next thing like how David is able to you know take after all that he's been through at the hands of Shaul, he's able to extract all the good of Shaul and all of the greatness of Shaul and, and eulogize that and give him that honor. It's a tremendous and beautiful eulogy that he gives in the next chapter. But till today, that's like the um, classic eulogy for fallen soldiers. Ech naflu gibarim, how have the mighty fallen? So, you know, he definitely David was a man of words. It's, beautiful words about Shaul. And, uh, you know, one of the things that he says that's so evocative to me is, is, is like, um, don't tell the women in Gat and Ekro, don't tell the Philistine women because they're going to rejoice. So that's the uh, the enemy we have. They're, they're going to rejoice over the you know, defeat of Shaul and Jewish people. So Bezrat Hashem, we're going to see victories and we're going to see redemption and Geula and good things. Amen. Seen a lot of hard things, so we want to see the good things. Bezrat Hashem. All right. So have yourself a little treat and Thank celebrate um, Kolakavot, people sticking with it. It's already Yeshua, Shoftim, Shmuel, Aleph. It's a lot. And moving on to Shmuel Bet. A lot of really interesting and controversial stuff in there. It's going to be a rocky ride. <laughs> Shmuel Bet's a tough book. So we, we will see. <coughs> Something. All right, ladies. Have a good night. Take care. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Okay.
bye bye